Let's Talk Native is produced at the LTN Studios on the Cataraugus territory of the Seneca Nation. We break all the rules for Native media by peeling back the layers of assimilation and indoctrination. No prayers, no buffalo speeches, and no spirituality shows. While this podcast does not provide a path to spiritual enlightenment, we do take a tough look at history, oppression, and our survival. We highlight the voices of Native activists, writers, poets, artists, thinkers, and musicians who are fighting for the rights of Indigenous people all over Turtle Island. We may step on a few toes through our examination of culture, art, politics, history, and identity. But the real goal here is to bring our people together by breaking down what separates us. In this moment of historical change and social justice, our voices matter now more than ever before. So, welcome to Let's Talk Native with John Kane. Sego, this is John Kane, and thanks for joining me. Uh, my topic today is stupid history. Now, I'm not suggesting that history in of itself is stupid, but how do we treat it and what do we recognize and and how do we hold the tellers of history and the accounts of history um how do we hold them to task to make sure that it's true and what do we do with that information i as as we sit here today we're we're uh living in what would be the 30th anniversary of the oka gunasadage crisis so it was 30 years ago that that standoff, which you know, which started with a shootout, leaving one police officer dead, and leaving women, men, uh, even a few children, holed up in the treatment center in Gunasadage, surrounded by what was first provincial cops, then the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, then the the Canadian Army. There was a time where Canada had more troops invested in the Gunasadage Oka crisis than they had sent to Desert Storm. That's how committed they were to putting down the resistance of our people. And what were our people resisting? A freaking golf course. I mean, and so that's what happened 30 years ago. But do we teach it? Do we learn from it? Now, I think there is a legacy from, uh, from what took place uh, in Ganazadage. And that legacy does play out, but not for everybody. Today, there are still standoffs. In fact, over the last couple of days, there's been uh, some major conflicts happening in Ontario or uh, in, uh, on native lands, in Six Nations, Oswego. That's where the, the conflict is. And, it, and it's conflicts over disputed land, not unlike Ganazadage. Disputed because white people are claiming it. And and we get barked to by you know the Ontario Premier, whatever he's called, I don't know, Doug Ford, saying, "Oh, there there's there has to be rule of law." Yeah, your law, law we never consented to, laws that you don't even follow when you're trying to screw us out of lands. And this is what we're up against. And we do have people who who have learned, and who have taken the legacy of Gunasadage and are still applying it. We, we, you know, we had major standoffs before COVID-19, before all of the, uh, before the world changed over a pandemic. 
Our people had shut down Canada. It shut down major uh, train routes, rail, uh, rail passage through Native territories. And this is tied to protecting our lands from development, whether it's for pipelines, whether it's for for housing, like what uh, what's happening in in Gunas, or in uh, Oswego, we we see out of what's what is now uh, developed out of the Black Lives Matter movement um, and so much of this social justice issues that you know that are now front and center in in much of the media. We have a charge. We're, we're, we call it fourteen ninety two land back. This idea of, of getting land back. And that's even a questionable um, process, I guess. But So when I say stupid history, it's only stupid if we don't learn from it. Or if we allow somebody to, to practice such revisionist history that what is being touted and taught as history, if it's being taught at all, is inaccurate. But I ask that question. Do we, do we teach our own? I mean, how many people really know what took place in, uh, in 1990 with, with Gunnar and Oga? How many people know what took place as we were fighting New York State over taxation in 1990 and uh, in 97 and you know, going back? Look, we do this every couple of years with the state. I mean, the, the Seneca Nation is involved in a major conflict over, over gaming revenue today, but who would know it? You wouldn't know it because nobody's engaged. So while a few learn from history... Most don't, but because most are either unaware of history or they just write it off completely. And, and there's a thing, the thing about oppression, if you get away with it for a long enough period of time, it becomes harder and harder to change. And part of the reason it's harder to change isn't just because of the oppressor, it's because of the oppressed. We g- grow so accustomed to it that we think it's just a matter, it's a fact of life. It's the cost of doing business, like paying a billion dollars to the state to do gaming when there when there are titles and none. We we write it off as that's just the way it is, and there's nothing we're going to do to change it. We we accept a a life of oppression because it's been there for so long. We don't acknowledge our power to change some of these things, and we don't acknowledge the true history that. Actually, if we, if we put it out there, if we, if we talk about the history, if we press those issues, we can make a compelling case. But we're, we'd rather hire a bunch of white scholars, whether they're lawyers or consultants or writers or journalists or whatever. We'd rather have them tell our story. And they're never going to get it right. It's, it's because they have their own agenda in, in what they're doing as well. We have to understand Look, we talk about the doctrine of Christian discovery. We've got some people out there who are saying, oh, yeah, well, the doctrine of Christian discovery is, uh, was very oppressive and, and it violated our rights to be considered part of we the people. No, that's not the argument we make with, with retelling that history. If we're going to tell that history, let's tell the history of oppression. And let's tell it in a way that says there was never a right for anyone Bible-toting or otherwise, to suggest that we were subhuman and that we didn't have the, the, the same rights that a white man had and that we could be dismissed or removed or terminated or exterminated. None of that stuff should have been, ever been valid. And, and, and it wasn't ever valid. 
So if we're going to expose some racist doctrine born out of the, out of the Vatican and promoted by by Christianity, all denominations of Christianity, I might add, if we're going to expose that, we don't expose that to say, so please accept us now. I mean, that, that doesn't even make any sense. That's what I say is stupid history. Because if we use it in the wrong way, if we aren't prepared to say, we understand what the history was, and we never consented. Doug Ford, we didn't consent to your laws. When you say we need to enforce and live by rule of law, if we never consented, I mean, look, most people would acknowledge that true authority for any government can only come from the consent of the governed. Well, if you didn't get consent from us, if you didn't get a, a surrender, some sort of submission, some annexation treaty, or or some historical event or doc, document or you know or occurrence that that says, okay, now we're yours, now we are subordinate to your laws. I mean, I know the United States and Canada will just say that's the case, but they never produce, they never produce documents that say this is when you became subordinate to our laws. And this is how. And this is the legal foundation for that subordination. Because the only way there can be legal, uh, legal foundation for that subordination is if we agreed to it. Even if that agreement was coerced at, at gunpoint uh, by a surrender. But that didn't happen either. But see, we don't even know that history. We don't teach that history to our kids. We don't, and we never talk about our successes. We don't talk about what we won. Even whether it was head-to-head or whether it was, frankly, even in their court systems. We'll, we'll, we'll hang a, a, you know, a couple of ribbons on, on a few court victories, but we don't ever talk about the significance of, of, of what was actually one of those cases. We'll break it down to something simple like, oh, yeah, we can do gaming now. Really? That's, that's what you've, you've taken away from, you know, from our sovereignty or our, our, our distinction? And that's another word, sovereignty. We get locked into this battle over discussion. Well, are we really sovereign? Do we, are we really sovereign if we um, uh, get federal funding or if we have this or if we have that? There is such a disconnect between understanding our right to make decisions for ourselves and whatever codependency or, or dependency of any kind based on finances or you know whatever they are whether they're charity whether they are payments that are due because of land sessions or or you know whatever has been taken from uh from our people when i hear people say well we're not truly sovereign because we get federal funds well for one thing that's not even those two things aren't even connected i mean israel's considered sovereign Israel gets billions of dollars from the United States. You know, there are countries all over the world that do. And nobody says, well, you're not sovereign because the United States is helping you. The United States isn't helping us. Canada isn't helping our people. They're paying a debt that's owed. And yet we sit here and question whether we are sovereign or not. Well, if you question that, if you don't know, then you're probably not. I mean, and, and again, we get caught up into these definitions of these words. I mean, the word sovereign is a word that I'm, I'm not real comfortable with. Why? Because for one thing, it's not our word. It came from, you know, it's a French word. Uh, you can tell by the, 
the G's and the N's and that kind of stuff. But it's, you know, it, it's a French word. And, it, and it's tied to this notion that one, among the biggest lies ever told were, were a few families in Europe that convinced a whole lot of other families that God gave them the, the authority over them. The people didn't give them the authority. God gave it to them. So they convinced a bunch of lowly people that they were ordained by God to rule over them and that they were the sovereign. That, that's where the word comes from. So it's about power. It's about authority. It's about power over people. It's about power over land. So when we use that word, I'm not real comfortable because if we reduce it back to the right and the authority to make decisions for ourselves, I mean, as a people, not just as a, as a government, but as a people, all right, but then we better make sure that we go the extra effort and define what we, what we mean when we say that word. Because if we use the word, the etymology of that word, we're suggesting that God, that God gave who power? Us as individuals, you know, chiefs, elected councils, they have power? And you see, the thing is about power is not the same thing as you know, being free or having a free and independent existence is not to say you have power over somebody. It's almost the antithesis, right? But see, we get caught into this stuff. And part of it is just not understanding history, not understanding real history. We have been, look, we've been massaged. We've been manipulated by the telling of history. We've had people convince us that we are U.S. citizens. They pass a law declaring that we're U.S. citizens, and we say, okay, we're U.S. citizens now. Yeah, we didn't get to be U.S. citizens until 1924 when they let us. No, they didn't let us become U.S. citizens. They declared it. They tried to impose that on us. But again, do we know the history? Do we talk about it? Do we teach our children this stuff? And so when we are ill-prepared to have speakers speak about these issues or writers write about journalists, if we, when we're ill-prepared to have people in, the, in, in a legal profession defend us or, or provide us legal counsel, they don't have the background. They were never taught this stuff. So all they're taught is what, is what they were taught to, to pass their bar exam, which is their stuff. They're taught their history, their version of history. We don't have anybody advising leadership on Native territories that understands true history. Hell, until Stephen Newcomb, you know, only a few decades ago began telling people about the doctrine of Christian discovery, most people didn't even know it. N none of our so-called legal scholars, our traditional leaders, none of them knew what, the, knew what it was. It, it took a Native person who had educated himself in, in, in a way that did not put him in their box but broke down the boxes, uh, the, the walls of that box so he could see things more clearly. And now many of us see it clear, but not all of us do. No, we've got some people who are still using bits and pieces of history to manipulate us into more indoctrination and assimilation. Look, when I talk about stupid history, I mean, look, it is, you know, we are in the midst of what I said is, is the 30th, Anniversary because it's not just a day. It was a, it was a you know a long drawn out summer of conflict uh, in Gunasadagi. But we're also this is also the seventy fifth anniversary of the United States dropping the only two nuclear weapons 
to be used in a war scenario and they were used on civilian targets in Japan uh, 75 years ago. And today, there are still people who will just try to justify it. I mean, that, that is essentially the, the, one of the worst war crimes ever committed. I mean, if it were done tomorrow, you don't think the entire world would, would condemn if another country did it? And, and the country that did it now wants to sit as the moral authority and, and somehow the adjudicator of who gets nuclear weapons and who doesn't? I mean, how bizarre is that? And wh- so why is that? Why is it? Stupid history that we refuse to learn from. Oh, I, I, even people who are absolutely opposed to the proliferation of nuclear weapons still have a real difficult time condemning the United States for being the only country on the planet to not only advance this technology to the point where it could be used, but actually use it, and use it when it was completely unnecessary. Japan was on its knees. They had already blasted the crap out of, out of Tokyo and, and maybe as many as a dozen other cities in the largest aerial assault ever assembled by, you know, by many countries. That, and they just dropped, you know, bomb, firebomb, firebomb, firebomb after bomb after bomb, killing hundreds of thousands of people, displacing millions. And that was in March of 1945. And then this week, between August 6th and August 9th, they would drop two atomic bombs that would take a country already on its knees. And, and, and the argument is, oh, yeah, those bombs um, uh, brought forth a surrender agreement more rapidly. Oh, yeah, it did. If you're only, but it only brought it forth more rapidly if you're counting it in days, not in lives. Because the amount of people who died in those two events... Those two bombs, to say that, that this was an efficient way to end, end the war? I mean, if efficiency is, is measured in, in body counts, in displaced people, in a people who would be injured by those bombings for decades, generations, actually generations because of deformities and 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 cancers and all kinds of other stuff i mean but we don't learn from history because we're going to sit here and justify it we're still going to teach our kids in school that somehow when the united states drops nuclear weapons it's okay and actually the people who did it are heroes the president who, who launched it, the president who, who launched the whole effort to you know, the Manhattan Project, the whole idea of developing nuclear weapons, that he's a hero. The one who ordered the, the dropping of the bombs, that he's a hero. The, the pilots who delivered this cargo, they're heroes. And don't, don't ever, and in fact, I think Obama went to Hiroshima a few years back when he was in, in office, and Fox News and the Republican were just cho- Republicans were chomping at the bit to, to, to like condemn him should he dare apologize or express a level of remorse that was unbecoming of a U.S. president. I mean, so again, stupid history. So, and, and, and we just don't learn. I mean, look, we, we, we'll still have a debate. Even in, in light of 
the bombing of Tokyo and the other cities in, in March of 1945, the dropping of two atomic bombs in, uh, in, in August of 1945, we still have many people saying, oh, our people won the war because we, we allowed them to exploit our language with code talkers. Really? Really? That history isn't told. So we continue to do the same thing. And, and, and like I said, if oppression is allowed to exist, not only because the oppressors justify it, but we the oppressed. I mean, if you've got to teach your son how, how not to be killed by cops, and you'll give your son that education, but you won't also work to end that likelihood or that, uh, that increased likelihood that a black boy will, will get murdered by police? Instead, you're going to say, "Well, let me teach you how to let me teach you how to survive police." And so, when we when we talk about defunding the police or changing the police or, or police reform, we're we're looked at as if we hate society somehow. Look, we have to learn from history, but if you don't know history, if you don't teach history, if our children are not raised to be proud of what we withstood, what we stood up and accomplished in every decade, in every generation, in every century, then how do we expect them to, to stand up in the future? The, the real likelihood is we will spend more time teaching them to submit. And, and to find a way to avoid the conflict, not stand up to it. So this is the challenge. This is the challenge of our lifetime. Look, we do this show to have these tough conversations. And yeah, I know some people get pissed off. I, I get it. Because I'm not trying to do a program to make everybody feel good. I'm trying to do a program that's going to make people think, challenge what they were taught, Challenge what they think they know. Experience a different life. Experience a life where there's hope and optimism. Not, I'm not going to tell people to experience a life that, that teaches them how to identify the landmines to, stop, to step around. I want to teach people to, to get rid of the landmines. I'm not interested in finding a comfortable place within the colonial systems. I'm interested in stripping away colonialism. That's what decolonization is. And I know I talk about that all the time. But if we don't understand history, if we don't know history, then how, then how would we know what to change? Or how would we even have a sense for what is changeable? Because it is all changeable. We all have the opportunity. And look, can everything be, everything be changed at once? No. Some things take time. Some things take preparation. Some things take lying, laying a foundation for that change. And then when the change does, uh, when the opportunity for that change does occur, anybody who sits back and says, well, we don't know where that came from. All of a sudden, this happened. No, it isn't all of a sudden. This is about preparation. It's about education. It's about 
strategy. I'm not saying conspiracy. I mean strategy. And that strategy is something that we all need to embrace. But we have to stop imposing their oppression upon us. Hey, we're at the bottom of the hour, so we'll take a break. And uh, then when we come back, we'll, uh, we're going to get into a little bit more. There's a few things that I want to talk about uh, specifically, and we'll, we'll get into that when we come back. This is John Kane, and this is Let's Talk Native. Thanks for coming back. This is John Kane. This is Let's Talk Native. Um, hey, look, let me go ahead and give a shout out to my sponsors. I want to thank Ross and Holly John and the RJE family of businesses. I want to thank Eric White in ERW Enterprises. I want to thank the folks at Grand River Enterprises for these are the, the, the core sponsors of the show. We, we have some other folks who step up and they you know throw a few dollars at us through PayPal or they put a check in the mail and, um, and that all helps. And so I appreciate all of you who have financially supported the work that we do here. Um, and that, that includes not only uh, the, the show we do in New York, um, out of the studio, the show we do in Washington, out of the studio, um, but the, 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 the shows, period, the short-form videos that we do that you can find on our website, which is www.letstalknative.com. Um, I, again, I thank all of you. And I also want to thank those of you who share the programs my wife in particular, who shares uh, some of the, the Facebook live streams and, uh, and those of you who share the podcast. I thank all of you for, for helping us have this conversation. And it is necessary. It's necessary because I'm going to tell you, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you right now, many people don't have the conversations that we have. Many people don't lift the veil. They don't, they don't turn over the rocks. They don't, they don't get it. Look, two stories that, that, that come to mind. One, which is, is kind of new this week, the, the Cayugas were de- denied uh, approval to have the lands that they had acquired put into trust. So their fee-to-trust application, which is buying land and then trying to get the federal government to hold it for them. So having the federal government take the title to the land and hold it for them, that, that application was denied. And you're, you know what I say? Great. Because that's a stupid freaking idea. The idea that, that the Cayugas, who, who are essentially paying white people to leave their land. It's their land. And to pay white people to leave it. And then ask the federal government to take it from them? So they can use it? Now look, beyond all of the other crazy stuff going, that goes on with Cayuga over leadership battles and everything else. The thing that I am most opposed to is any of our people, Haudenosaunee people, any of our people, putting our lands or lands that that we occupy in the hands of the federal government to hold for our use and enjoyment. I understand. Look, I I get it. That's the way land, much of land that is considered native land, that's how much of uh, land in Canada is held. 
That's how much of the land uh, in, in the United States, uh, on this side of, of the, that imaginary line, much of native land is held by the federal government for native people. So just to be clear, what that means is the title to that land is not original title. It's not the title. The land isn't held under native title. It's held under U.S. title, which is bullshit. So when I hear um, in this situation, the trust application denied, I don't think it's a terrible thing. Now, okay, so what does that mean? Does that mean that I support what the federal government did to the Mashpee Wampanoag? No, I don't support what the federal government did. But think about this. In order for the Wampanoag to 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 take land, or the, I'm sorry, the, the, the yeah, the Mashpee to take land and reclaim it as theirs, they had to convince the federal government that they were already under U.S. jurisdiction. Not when they're not now. They don't have to try to convince that they're under U.S. jurisdiction now. They're like, oh, of course we're under your jurisdiction now. Of course we're under your, we've submitted to the laws of the United States now. No, they had to convince the federal government and they, they had to provide proof that they were already subjugated in 1934. In spite of the United States trying to, you know, tweak their laws to say, oh yeah, you guys are Americans. I mean, actually passing a law to say, yes, you are American citizens. You are U.S. citizens. Well, but we didn't ask for that. And in fact, they know that that didn't work because they, in 1934, they tried to redefine Native people again. And they tried to, you know, reassert U.S. jurisdiction over, over Native people. And as I said earlier in the show, today... If you ask the Canadian government or the U.S. government or a provincial government or a state government to say, when was that? When did that happen? When was the event? When was the date that we transferred our sovereignty to you? No, I didn't ask you when did you pass a law claiming you had it. Because anybody can do that. <laughs> Hell, Trump can write executive orders you know, uh, all day long that are absolutely meaningless and stupid. So don't tell me when you pass law. Tell me when we agreed, when we consented to that. Because if that didn't have it happen, then we aren't we aren't among the governed because you can only have power over people who consent to it. And we haven't. So I mean, I look at these two cases, the Wampanoag case, the, the you know, the, the Mashpee case and the and the Cayuga case. And, but I understand the Cayugas are in a better position because that land that they have paid the white people to leave is still listed, just like in the Oklahoma case, essentially, uh, that just transpired. It is still, as far as the federal government is concerned, it was never declassified as Cayuga land or as, you know, Choctaw land out in, in Oklahoma. I know what what the Mashpee are go, were going through was a little bit of a tougher situation because they are trying to assert their right to require lands that may that they may not have had that same federal acknowledgement at that uh, you know at, at a previous date. But see again, this is about history. This is about us learning that history and and trying not to allow them 
to twist their twist our history around or getting us to submit to some fallacy of history so what we can so we can claim to own land again look this is i mean this is what we're talking about we throw words around like that we're 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 sovereign and then many of our own people will say well are we really without defining what that word means because you know in the united states what they do is they, they take a word and they'll stick another word in front of it so they'll take something like sovereignty and they'll say oh but we said tribal sovereignty which isn't real sovereignty in fact we're going to put a word in front of it that is a, that is a pejorative word so all you people who want to claim to be tribes or tribal understand that anytime that word is stuck in front of another word it diminishes the second word so when you take the word sovereignty and you say, oh, I don't know, we mean tribal sovereignty. Oh, oh, okay, you didn't mean real sovereignty. You meant tribal sovereignty. It's, it's kind of like the United States, and I've talked about this on the show before, uh, when they talk about self-determination. See, they put another word in front of it. They, they said, no, we mean internal self-determination. We don't mean real self-determination. We mean they get determined determine the things that we, we put them in a box and we'll let them play in that box. But we're not going to let them determine their, their future or their history, for that matter, outside that box. That's why it's called internal, because they're in the box. So we have to, we have to stop deferring to their definitions. And, and I know it's tough because, look, we speak English. And, you know, and, and while many of our, our languages are still alive, and, which is a good thing, the important thing about having our, our languages still exist is that we use those languages as the foundation of our strategies going forward, not their language. You know, if we have to translate our languages, so if we have to take our words and we're going to translate them in, into English, Let's not shortchange our, you know, the intent and the etymology of thought that went into the words in our language. See, if that's confusing, let me try to be more clear. So people say, well, well we don't, well, the word sovereignty isn't our word. But we, we have words in our language that talk about the power or the right or the authority, the responsibility to carry ourselves. That's the closest word we have to what people are interpreting as sovereignty it's about the right or power to carry ourselves it's not the power over everybody else and in fact in many of our cultures Haudenosaunee culture in particular that that power is in the individual it's not a council a tribal council a chief's council a clan mother or chief and it's not in the people as a whole it's the it's a birthright it's you're born with that right that authority to carry yourself i mean that's and but we're not teaching that either we'll allow our kids get you know to be enrolled in public school and the first thing they learn uh, the first social contract they learn is to recite the pledge of allegiance to the flag of the united states and we don't counter it we don't explain what they're teaching them to say. And in fact, nobody does. They just teach them to recite it. 
And and so because we get taught to recite some of this bullshit, we grow up believing it. We believe that we can't be gunyakahaga, onyotaaga, onundawaga. No, we can't be those things. And if we are, we, we, we have to internalize it. Oh, we can only be that here. I mean, if, if you believe what the white man says, when we step off of our native, out of our native communities, we're the same as them. <clears throat> and of course, we're not really the same as them. We're not equal to them because we're people of color. But when we can be masters of our universe on our territory, but when we step off our territory, we're at the bottom rung of their, of their social scale. That's where we are. And we, we begin to accept that. And look, I talk about it all the time. And, and it's one of my pet peeves, I guess, <laughs> for lack of a better expression, I guess. We don't teach our people to carry our words. We hire white people to do it. We hire lawyers to defend us. We hire consultants to advise us. We hire PR people to speak for us. We hire PR people to write for us. So even when you see a Native person get up and speak, if he's reading a speech, a white man wrote it, in all likelihood. Now, it might have had some editing done. <laughs> because if you don't edit somewhat, you're going to have Native people saying stuff that is really stupid. Trust me on this one. <laughs> and so why is that? Why do we have, why do, why is it that these Washington law firms have more authority in, or more of a role in, in the direction, the strategy, the leadership of our, of our, our peoples than, than our own people? Part of it is we don't understand history. We don't understand our own history, and we don't teach it. So we don't prepare a child to carry, not a chip on our shoulder, but to understand that, that from an early age, we're recognizing that, that, that there is going to be a burden placed upon you. and what, Because the skill sets that we recognize in you, we want to encourage that skill set to develop. And, and I don't care what that skill set is, whether it's singing, whether it's speaking, whether it's dancing. Oh, we'll, we'll encourage our kids to dance. But do we encourage them to speak? Do, do we ask a Native person to carry our message? Look, I do this show. Nobody asked me to do this show. Do this. Let's Talk Native. Look, we're in our 11th year. This is almost an anniversary show for that, too. We talk about history. This is our 11th. We're entering our 11th year here. And I didn't ask permission. Look, I do have some people who support what I do. But when I first started this, I went in wide-eyed and said, yeah, I think some of these things need to be talked about. I, you know, honestly, I, I guess I should check. I don't know what the first show I did was on. I know that we've been mired in, in so many battles with New York State over taxes, over control, over regulatory issues. There's so many and that I've discussed over the years. And look, it can be discouraging. It really can because we've had success. But we don't build on that success. 
We, we, we have these moments of success and you know what we do? We make money. And then we forget what, why we had that right to do that. The right to do, to, to make money or, or the opportunity to make money wasn't what the battle was over. The battle was over telling the state, no, you, you have no authority to, to, to tax what we do on our territories or to regulate what we do on our territories. And then what happens? We fight that battle, we fight that battle, we fight that battle, and then we do, then we, we, we enter into a gaming compact with the state. And we give them authority over the operations of our business. We promise to pay them for a concession they're supposed to make to us, which turns out not to be one after all. And then we build a business and then operate that business in the, in, with fear that, that it'll all come to an end. We don't build. We, we catch what they, they allow us to do. And, you know, that, that's why the, the private sector that exists in some native territories is so important because when most of these businesses started, they didn't start with permission. They started with, with a few bold people that were courageous enough to fight things. Look, and look, I'm not trying to make heroes out of anybody. <clears throat> but there was a risk involved. The second wave, the third wave, the fourth wave of people who got into the gas and cigarette business, they didn't take on the, the risk. <clears throat> they saw that the risk was already mitigated by people who went before them. It's the first people that I'm talking about who took the risk. And it wasn't just a risk. They took on the fight. And I mean a fight. I mean, there were people who were selling cigarettes out of the trunk of their car and, and, they, and they were doing it with a baseball bat in one hand. And some of the people that they were fighting off, wasn't, it wasn't just the state authorities. It, was, it might have been organized crime or anybody else. But see, we don't teach that. We don't teach about our battles with New York State over taxation. We don't teach about, look, I've heard our own people talk about the Atia case and, and how the Atia case was a landmark decision that allowed the states to tax Native people. And it's just bullshit. That's not what the case was. Atia was a white guy who sold tobacco products to Native people. He argued that in federal court, that he, since he had a federal Indian trader's license, one that he got from the Interior Department, that that license to sell his products superseded state law. That's what the Atia case was. And his argument kept New York State from being able to enforce the laws they were trying to enforce for a while until it went all the way to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court ruled against Atia. And because that was an impediment in, in the state's way, when that impediment got lifted, the whole case gets mischaracterized and says, well, yeah, the Atia case is a landmark decision that allowed the states to, to uh, tax Native people. There's nothing, we weren't even in the case. We weren't a party to the, uh, to the lawsuit. But our own people, our own lawyers, the lawyers who, who advise our people will still say that crap. And who's there to argue with them? I mean, I can do it on this show, and I will, and I do, and I have. But nobody confronts anybody with this stuff. 
some of the things that I've heard from these $500, $600, an hour lawyers just makes me cringe. They literally advise our people in, in such a way to, to accept subjugation. Say, oh no, they, they, they did that to you. No, and this is, this is how you have to play the game. You've got to do it this way. You've got to be one of them. You've got to beat them at their own game. Bullshit. I don't want to play their game. I don't want to vote in their elections. I don't want to have to sue them in court. I don't want to have to find the loopholes in their regulations that we can slip through to make a, make a buck and support our families. No. And if, if I've got to hire a lawyer who's got to tell me how I can manipulate myself and maneuver myself around their laws to have an economy, then I don't want you as a lawyer. I want to see native people. I want to see the native people like the ones in Six Nations right now who are willing to push the, the police off their territory, push the OPP off, like they did in Oka, in Gunasadake, like they've done in Gunawage, like they've done here in Seneca Territory. But we won't even teach. Look, where, we, where I live today on, on the Cataraugus Territory of Seneca Nation, this was ground zero in the fight against New York State. We don't even teach our kids that. Our kids don't know what we accomplished against the state. So why would any kid want to say, you know what, I need to dedicate more of my life to this. When, I mean, now what do we tell them? You know, get a job in the casino? <laughs> I'll tell you, not the greatest jobs in the world, folks. And they... There's no job security. COVID-19 should have proven that. But it's not just COVID-19. It's an industry that's based on paying, making extortion payments to New York State. Well, how secure is that? I mean, I don't know what the Seneca people will do about their leadership. And... And when I say their leadership, I don't mean just their elected leaders. I mean every one of the managers, every one of the of the the, the executives, every one of the board members on their their gaming boards. They all agree that paying the state is the easiest thing to do. In fact, many of them will agree <clears throat> that paying the state is the right thing to do. And it's not. It's not the right thing to do. And again, if we live under oppression long enough, we get accustomed to it. Hell, even the white man wrote that. I think there's a line in the Declaration of Independence that talks about um, living under oppression and what, you know, it, that it's human nature to accept, to bear the, unbe to bear the bearable. You know, as long as you can withstand the oppression, as long as you can, you can hold up under that oppression, then you just continue. You don't strike it away. And, and that's what our experience is. And why, is, that, why do, is it that way? It's because we don't know the stupid history. We don't know because nobody, 
they're not going to teach us this stuff in, in public school. They damn sure don't teach it in college. Look, I do speaking engagements. Well, I used to before COVID-19. I do speaking engagements. I have white people tell me all the time, and I get this a lot of times from listeners in New York and, and other places, who say, how do I not know this? How did I not know about the Dakota 38? The, the, you know, the 50% mortality rate at residential schools. How did I not know this? How do I not know about Lord Jeffrey Amherst writing to submit or writing to, to spread smallpox infected blankets? Why do we not know this? Why don't I know about the Mohawks who took land back in the Adirondacks in the 70s and took a community, took it from New York State? They didn't buy it. They didn't pay white people to leave it. They moved in. Now, granted, they did accept a, uh, you know, they, they swapped it out, the original land that they took to defend. They swapped it for another parcel that is Gunyange today. How come nobody knows this? You know, and, and then the people who do know something about Gunnazadage or do know something about Wounded Knee or do know something about Gunyange, they don't know, they don't know the true story. They know bits and pieces. And, and many times, the stories get so manipulated that they're not even told as good stories. They're told as acts of terrorism. Oh, this is what we cannot do. Or you'll hear people say, well, you know, we were able to do that in the 70s, but we can't do that now. Why? Why? Peaceful protests are great. For peaceful oppression. Nonviolent direct action is great against nonviolent oppression. But if they're killing you, if you're dying, if the conditions that were created <clears throat> by Canada, by the USA, that our people are living under are killing our people, I don't know if peaceful protests are enough. Painting Native Lives Matter on somebody's street isn't going to change any of that. And I'm not, this is not in any way, shape, or form a condemnation of Black Lives Matter. We have benefited, we, Native people, we've benefited from the Black Lives Matter movement. And I'm grateful for that movement. But when I hear Native people say, well, all lives matter. No, they don't. They don't. I posted a meme. I didn't create the meme, but I posted a meme this week on Facebook that, that called out anybody who says all lives matter. Why? Because when they said all men are created equal, they didn't mean all men. They didn't mean all. When they said liberty and justice for all, they didn't mean all. So apparently white people don't know what the freak all means. So when people say all lives matter, what you're saying is that all lives matter some. But some lives matter more than others. And so I take a little offense, even, even to Native people who will say, well, Native lives matter. You know, look, I'm all for 1492 land back. I'm all for I don't know more. I don't need to take and appropriate somebody else's movement that I'm already benefiting from. Why would, I, why would I want to diminish that message? I'll say Black Lives Matter all day. But I don't need to appropriate it. 
we have we actually have a little different agenda as native people we're not fighting for equality and i'm not condemning people who fight for equality look there is no equality in the united states and it's not just a a race thing It, it is that but it's not just that it's a class thing there are many people it's it's a gender issue there's there's so much inequality in the united states that it's that it's incredible the inequality but that's not what i'm fighting for as a native person i'm not fighting to be equal i'm not fighting to be greater either i'm just fighting for distinction i'm fighting for a free and independent existence why because that's what we had before they showed up was our lives utopian oh i don't know i'm sure we had drought i'm sure we had you know some uh, some bitter cold winters and people who froze to death and lost their lives but you know what we still have people freezing to death we still have drought we still have poverty and suicide we didn't we probably didn't have suicide did we have conflicts not conflicts like this not not war the way white people defined war dropping an atomic bomb on civilian targets killing a hundred thousand people with one weapon you want to talk about weapons of mass destruction with one weapon vaporizing people burning people's flesh off of their bodies women children now i'm not going to put your uniform on i'm not going to give you my language to use i'm not going to let you do that to anybody because i'll tell you i know who you're going to do it to nobody dropped an atomic bomb on germany or on Mussolini. no no they, they drop it they drop it on japan why those people are different they're kind of brownish people they're asians they're not europeans so look i say stupid history because that's what we're taught and to even to the extent that we're taught the stupid history we don't learn from it we don't take that history and say how do we take these lessons of history and and don't give me this bullshit that you can't look at historical occurrences through today's lens today's lens is exactly what you need to look at it through don't look at it through the lens of the racist white people who 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 were performing these atrocities because when people say well you know slavery was uh was a terrible thing but you have to consider the time you know what there was never a time that slavery was good for the people who were enslaved they never liked it they never liked it even the house slaves didn't like it so don't tell me that we can't look at historical events and historical atrocities through the lens that we now view through view things through this is exactly the lens we need to view it through but from from a native perspective if we're not going to teach our kids the true history then they aren't going to grow up with that true history 
And you know what will happen in, in 10 or 15 years? We're still going to have white people leading us around. Not just congressmen, not just senators, not just judges or presidents or police officers, but the people we hire directly will still be leading us around. Just because the history they're teaching is stupid doesn't mean that we have to be. Thanks for listening. This is John Kane. This is Let's Talk Native. Yahweh.